So this is the episode we had to have. Right here, right in the smack middle of the decade, is the band that sums up the 90s Australian alternative music scene. No more whatever the hell that means. Whatever the hell that means is what is in this episode. The five years before led up to this. The five years after is because of this. This is the story of Silverchair and their label, Murmur. Silverchair were the most successful band of the era, and right from the start it seems like every aspect of the band was covered and scrutinised. They were instant celebrities. But history changes. The story of how these three teenagers came to be worldwide stars for a moment has changed over the years through retelling and different perspectives. Even time itself changes the story. So what do we see when we look back at the Silverchair story today? And what was their legacy on Australian music? Welcome to Just Ace, a podcast about the 90s Australian alternative music scene, whatever the hell that means. This week, we look at the apex of this whole damn thing. We look at the Silverchair story and their groundbreaking label, Murmur. Newcastle is three hours north of Sydney along the coast and the second biggest city in the state of New South Wales. It was a working man city, a city of steel workers with a large steel factory owned by PHP at the heart of it. At least it was in the years leading up to Silverchair's arrival. Newcastle isn't really a place rich with music history. Screaming Jets, who were signed to Ruart, were from Newcastle. And that makes sense because they were kind of a straight working man's rock band. Music to have a beer to. And there's nothing wrong with that. I have been known to have a beer with music sometimes. But it wasn't a place for songwriters to hone their craft or artists to work on their mission. The pattern for arty kids in places like Newcastle and other regional Australian cities is to leave. I guess that's true everywhere, right? Arty kids who live three hours from London or New York flood into the big city to make their dreams come true. I was a Sydney kid and I've made lots of really good friends over the years of people who ran away from Newcastle. Three hours is close enough to get away. Which is to say Newcastle isn't where the biggest band of the decade should come from. It's not a city that A&R men frequent. It's not a place that has heaps of venues for local bands to play and develop. Even the young people who would be the audience for these bands all moved to Sydney a long time ago. Triple J going national and the technology change of the 90s brought regional Australia closer to the cities. Everyone had heard of Nirvana and Pearl Jam by now and there were grunge fans everywhere. Sydney and Melbourne inner city bands were starting to do more regional shows because Triple J brought them an audience there. And maybe, just maybe, bands could make it without moving away. But hey, not that the kids that would be in Silverchair were old enough to go anywhere just yet. The future members of Silverchair, Daniel Johns, Ben Gillies and Chris Joannou, are all a year to 18 months older than me. If we went to school together, they would have been the year above me. So I can only assume that my discovery of music is pretty close to theirs. I imagine they found Nirvana and the grunge explosion inescapable and that Triple J was there, and bands like Ratcat and Frentay and The Cruel Sea were around. That they probably watched Hey Hey It's Saturday with their parents, and got a CD player in the early 90s, and watched Rage and video hits. The parents of these members were all working class folks who, probably like thousands of parents in Australia, thought they'd let their kids play a bit of music, and buy them some guitars. You know, kids seem to be into it at the moment. It's like letting your kid buy a Nintendo Switch today. It's what kids were doing. Ben, Chris and Daniel started a band called The Innocent Criminals. They were just a high school band. They were 15 and played school assemblies and dances. A lot was made about how the families of Silverchair were extremely normal. 
In the 90s, they probably were. They came from solid homes and none of their parents were in showbiz. They lived in a Newcastle suburb away from the rabble. I don't know what they thought their kids were going to be when they grew up, but it probably wasn't rock stars. The Innocent Criminals did a lot of what high school bands did. They entered high school band competitions. They wrote their own songs that emulated their heroes. They even paid for some time with a local studio to record some demos. But then something else happened. The story of how their lives all changed has been told a million times. So here's the millionth and first. SBS is a semi-government funded TV station that focused on multicultural programs and news to serve multicultural Australia. SBS stands for Special Broadcasting Service. It had news programs in lots of different languages, foreign movies, and lots of non-white presenters. As a kid, SBS was mainly soccer, which in the 90s was not a big sport in Australia, but loved by our European diaspora, and foreign movies shown late at night that showed a lot of skin. Those raunchy European films would be on around 11pm, and soccer games were shown at European times, so the middle of the night, random 2am games or whatever. So SBS had the nickname of Sex Before Soccer, and the nickname was well earned. I'm guessing to get that government funding, SBS had to do some degree of arts programming. Or, for commercial reasons, they wanted to tap into the new Triple J hip audience. Either way, SBS launched Nomad in 1992, which played some music film clips and did stories on bands and art stuff. It wasn't groundbreaking, it was just an afternoon kids show with a music bent. They did interviews with Henry Rollins and features on comic books. It was what kids were into. Nomad series producer was Tracy Hutchinson, a former Triple J presenter and one of the ones that was culled in 1991. In 1994, the show ran a demo competition. Again, not too groundbreaking, but kind of cool to do. The competition was called Pick Me and it was in partnership with Triple J. The winner would win time in the Triple J in-house studio to record their song properly and a cheap film clip would be made by the Nomad staff. The story goes, a neighbour suggested they should enter the SBS Triple J Pick Me competition. It sounds a little like a humble brag, like it wasn't even their idea to enter in the first place. A bit of a record company spin to keep the normal core story going. I can't imagine those guys didn't want to win an SBS Triple J talent competition. The song they sent in was called Tomorrow, one of their first demos. It was a six minute monster. The full demo is all over the internet and I'll link to it in the show notes. But here's a bit of that original demo of Tomorrow by The Innocent Criminals. There were well over 800 entries and Hutchinson and her panel were listening to tapes for weeks. But in the end, it was the Innocent Criminals that got the nod. The band recorded their song at Triple J Studios with in-house producer Phil McKellar. 
Robert Hambling, a director who was on the Nomad panel, directed a film clip. It was made in an old abandoned jail in Newcastle with smoke machines and a swaying light bulb. And that should have been it. Young kids from Newcastle won a TV competition. They should have made the local paper. They should have made an EP, gotten some Triple J airplay, maybe scored a tour and made an album. They should have moved to Sydney and spent their 20s trading the boards and moved back home in their 40s and gotten normal jobs. They should have been occasionally telling the nomad story to other dads at barbecues while their kids rolled their eyes. But that's not what happened. Tomorrow wasn't just any song. It was a perfect little slice of second generation grunge. Hearing the song today, you can still hear what made it so captivating the first time around. Song-wise, the soft loud stuff works perfectly. It wasn't too heavy to put off the masses. McKellar did a wonderful job producing the song. Listen to those guitars. They were just perfect for the time, and they still sound really great today. The version recorded at the Triple J Studios also cut the song down to a radio-friendly 4 minutes and 25 seconds. Daniel John's voice is spot on with what was popular on radio at the time. His voice, we all found out later, is actually sweeter and more pop. It sounds sweeter on the demo for tomorrow as well. But he's 15 and he's aping his heroes. And it paid off. It came a little bit later, but tomorrow being a hit was helped by how the band looked and who the band were. I'm not sure if Nomad took any of that into account, but they found an interesting story next to a good song. There are moments in that original film clip where Daniel Johns has his blonde hair covering his eyes, he's got his stripy t-shirt on, and he's laying into his guitar. And if you pause it, it could be mistaken for a Nirvana film clip, or at least any kind of American grunge. Which is to say, they kind of looked right, and that this first film clip, they leaned into it. Now, I can't imagine that these teenagers with no manager would have had much creative say in that film clip. But I also imagine that these three kids probably thought it made them look cool. So here's what they came out with. Here's Tomorrow, first credited to the Innocent Criminals from 1994. Tomorrow has been overanalyzed, parodied and dissected many times. Was it a sad song? Was it an angry song? Were the lyrics bad? Is it too long? The answer is maybe, maybe, maybe and what does it matter? People spend millions of dollars trying to make hit songs. The Innocent Criminals managed to do it at age 15 from Newcastle. Let's talk about the Nirvana thing. When people say Silverchair were just ripping off Nirvana, I kind of think, of course, Nirvana was huge. 
There were probably a handful of kids in every Western high school in the entire planet trying to rip off Nirvana. Multi-platinum chart bands with record deals were ripping off Nirvana. Remember how you dressed in the 90s? You were ripping off Nirvana. The Innocent Criminals were announced the winner of Pick Me in June of 1994. From there, it was a hell of a few months. Here's how it all played out. Triple J were part of the Pick Me competition and would have supported the song anyway. There was no radio meeting about this one. No one from a label presented the song to the station and no one brought in overseas radio reports or upcoming tour dates to try and convince Triple J of playing this song. It was already in their library. But they didn't have to play it a lot or anything. Playing debut songs from new Australian bands happened all the time on Triple J. So they gave Tomorrow by the Innocent Criminals a few cursory spins to their huge national audience. This song recorded by an unsigned band from Newcastle. But soon people started requesting the song. For Tracy Hutchinson and the Nomad team, they started getting calls from labels about the band. Instead of playing favourites, Hutchinson put the band in touch with a good music lawyer, Brett Oten, who also managed bands like The Welcome Mat, and Oten protected the band as much as possible. It was a good idea because labels were starting to call the family directly. And then, the day after the Nomad competition aired, Hutchinson got the call that Nomad was axed. The families of the innocent criminals had no idea about the music industry, but seemed to deal with it all with a healthy amount of cynicism and defence. Maybe if the band were 18, the parents would have played a smaller role and everything would have worked out differently. But the band was 15, too young to make decisions, and protecting them was paramount. This was probably true on the label side as well. If they were 18, maybe the labels would have offered a more exploitative contract. In the end, the choice came down to two labels, Mushroom and Murmur. The two labels were very different. Mushroom was founded in 1972 by Michael Gadinsky, one of the most successful music people in Australia. Their success included Skyhooks, whose Living in the 70s album was at the centre of Double J's beginnings. They released Cool Stuff by early Nick Cave band Boys Next Door, Split Ends, Paul Kelly, Hunters and Collectors and many more. And then they had a healthy pop arm with Kylie Minogue and Indecent Obsession. They were successful, acclaimed and loved, in the 80s at least. In the 90s though, Gadinsky started to expand Mushroom internationally and setting them up in the UK. That might have been why he had so far missed out on the alternative explosion back in Australia, a scene at the time that was very much inspired by the US. Mushroom bands were noticeably absent from Triple J. First Nations group Yothu Yindi were the only active mushroom band to play in the first couple of Big Day Outs. They did manage to sign Frente, who had started to see some international success in this new international mushroom, and they managed to beat Ruart to their signature. But it wasn't enough. Mushroom had the largest and most acclaimed roster of Australian artists in the 80s, but their newer acts were like the Rockmelons and the Bad Loves, who were on the wrong side of cool. On the other side was Murmur. Far from having decades of experience, Murmur was established three days before Nomad announced the Innocent Criminals as the winner of their competition. Murmur was Sony Music Australia's tactic to deal with this alternative explosion. They had managed to nab John O'Donnell, the editor of Juice, to run it. By his side was Sony A&R John Watson, who had worked in indie distribution and previously tried to start a label within Sony called Raw. He had helped to bring Diet Pretty to Sony a year or so earlier. John and John had met while working at Rolling Stone. John O'Donnell was the editor and John Watson was a freelancer. They were joined by Susan Robertson, who would also be at Murmur for all their big success years. Sony gave the two Johns a lot of power. 
possibly because they didn't know better. But give them credit that Sony knew that they didn't know better. The label was named after REM's wonderful debut album. The mission was to tackle these new bands, but yet give them the resources of Sony. The label would be staffed with people who knew this new scene. Both labels, Mushroom and Murmur, flew to Newcastle to see the band and meet the families. Mushroom got in first. They saw the band, liked what they saw, and made an offer. Murmur managed to see the band shortly after. John Watson went back to Sydney, and the next morning, he wrote a lengthy plan about how to break the band. The approach of the two rival labels could not have been more different. Money is important in the music business, but it's not the most important, especially in these alternative years in the middle of the 90s. Mushroom had grand plans for the band and they would bring the money to back it up. They loved the name The Innocent Criminals. They knew the appeal of them being young and they were attractive boys. Already they could see a massive teen audience. They were enthusiastic about a long forgotten demo called Won't You Be Mine and felt that tomorrow was already done. Murmur went completely the other way. They offered far less money, but more in terms of a long-term plan. Again, I wonder if the band was 18 and not 15, if this would have been the case. But Murmur wanted to avoid making their age the hook, and in doing so, they put a bubble around the band. Listening to the band's parents, Murmur built a strategy that would keep the kids in school, working hard on weekends and holidays, and allow success to come later. The Murmur Johns were younger than the Mushroom guys too. The Mushroom guys were legendary record guys like Bill Page and Warren Costello. But the Johns could talk to the innocent criminals about Pearl Jam, and they even gave them some rare recordings because Pearl Jam were on Sony. They were also ballsy enough to suggest that some of their older demos, the ones that Mushroom liked, weren't good enough, and that the name The Innocent Criminals wasn't great either. It was a bit of a dumb joke that was distracting. The band actually felt the same way about their old stuff and their band name. They felt that Murmur, with absolutely no track record, understood them. And so they put their signatures on a contract for Murmur and essentially signed to Sony Music. There's an alternative universe somewhere where the innocent criminals signed to Mushroom and they went down a more commercial road. You can see it in the fate of teenage guitarist Nathan Cavalieri, an artist that signed to Mushroom around the same time. Nathan was a guitar prodigy who was three years younger than even Daniel Johns. He signed to Mushroom and released his debut album in 1993 called Jamming with the Cats. He was 11, but already had respect for musicians many times his age and worked with people like Jimmy Barnes, Johnny Diesel and Tommy Emmanuel. But the scene around Nathan was all about his age. He was portrayed as a child prodigy. He would appear many times on Hey Hey It's Saturday and people would go to pains to discuss his prodigious talent. He would have to stand on a box to be at the same height as the host, Daryl Summers. And when he was there, they would ask him about his favourite school subjects on national TV. Even though he wasn't in teen magazines, he was very commercial. He did a single with Jimmy Barnes that was included as part of a serial promotion. He did a headline tour of shopping centres. For many people, Nathan is trapped in amber as the 11-year-old kid we saw on TV. He made two albums, the final one released in 1994. He got a deal with Epic in the US, also part of Sony, who would also eventually release Silverchair. But he gave up music once he finished school and became a bricklayer. Although Nathan has worked hard to get his career back on track many decades later, he was burnt out before he finished school. Murmur's plan was different to Mushroom's, and the Johns got to work on their anti-plan. There was the name to sort out. The band was tired of the innocent criminals. And what even is a good band name? 
Like, what is a Coldplay or a Wilco? What is Smashing Pumpkins? I mean, Ben Harper ended up calling his backing band the Innocent Criminals just a few years later. So was it even that bad? The story that was bandied about at the time was that the name came from a Frankensteining of two songs that they loved, UMI's Berlin Chair and Nirvana's Sliver, the later misspelt. It's a nice story with a bit of indie cred that has since been debunked. It was just a name that sounded cool and it was taken from a long list of ideas. The Silver Chair, two words, was a C.S. Lewis book and it probably got on the list because of that. I guess the name worked in that it tied them to this growing indie scene, but still a bit of early myth building. When it came to publicity, the band focused on street press and cool music magazines. They also focused on fanzines, guitar mags, and their photo shoots were tightly controlled. Interviews were also tightly managed and focused on their music, not their age. The band made very limited appearances. They turned down interviews and TV. Mainstream TV shows like Hey Hey It's Saturday wanted them to perform. Current affair shows like 60 Minutes wanted time with the band. Big headline tours beckoned. I'm sure they got offered a tour of shopping centres, but they all got a no. When they did play, they played in pubs where they were too young to actually get into, and they played at regular late-night set times. When they did do a small tour at the end of 1994, it was with bands like Regurgitator and Powderfinger, well before those bands hit it big. They played a short set at a Triple J showcase and at an FBI radio fundraiser. There were certainly no big tours, and they couldn't do it anyway because of school. Even the Tomorrow EP itself, released on the 16th of September 1994, just three months on from the Pick Me win, was anti-marketing. It was the same version that was recorded at the Triple J Studios when they were called The Innocent Criminals. No reason not to, the song worked fine, and it was all good enough to just set up the band. But they didn't make it a normal single. It was released in a thicker album jewel case and marketed as an EP with three extra tracks, and it cost a little more. No one needed the money. It was all designed to make Silverchair a serious band and not a teenage fad. The EP cover was typical of grunge with a light bulb, maybe the one that was swinging in their film clip, but it's the moody colours and the scratchy 90s writing that makes it look very serious. Basically, they didn't want someone wanting to pick up the latest pop single for their grandkids to choose Silverchair. Ruart, the label that we talked about last season, in 1990 and 91 got the bands right and the marketing all wrong. Although it could be argued, they had no other choice at the time. Red Eye, in 92 and 93, tried to play both sides and got caught in the middle. Murmur, in 94, basically went all in on Triple J and the alternative scene and nothing else. And they were able to do that because the alternative scene was so big now. Tomorrow, the first Silverchair single was the first release on Murmur. It was given the catalogue number of Matt CD001, Matt being the name of John O'Donnell's son. By late October, it was number one. On radio, the focus was Triple J, although Tomorrow was such a hit that commercial radio played it anyway. It would sell a little bit more than the 6,000 copies they initially targeted. It would sell 180,000 copies. It hit number five in the Triple J Hottest 100 of 1994, the highest Australian song on the list, and the highest Australian song since the poll went yearly. I absolutely considered naming this podcast Tomorrow, a podcast about the 90s Australian alternative music scene, whatever the hell that means. Listening to it now, it sounds pretty good. It was everywhere in 1994, so much so that I remember every note and every word. I don't know if it holds up to any real emotional meaning. It kind of got overplayed, and the main thing I feel about it is nostalgia. So Silverchair had a hit song, 
but it was still really who they were that made them stars. Silverchair was a success because beyond their one hit, a new audience connected with the band. In many ways, they were the new Triple J audience. They loved Nirvana, Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. They had the long unkept hair and they wore nothing but band t-shirts. A huge section of my high school looked like Silverchair. I'm sure a lot of your high school did as well. If they weren't in Silverchair, the members of Silverchair would be fans of Silverchair. Apparently, even after Triple J started playing tomorrow, they would still request songs on Triple J's Request Fest. That's because that's what 15-year-old Nirvana fans did in Australia. The band stayed in school while their songs were everywhere. I can't imagine what being in school was like post-fame for Ben, Chris and Daniel. I can't imagine kids were anything but cruel. It's also interesting that in so many interviews with the band around this time, they never talk about it. I can't imagine there wasn't a single journalist who didn't want to ask what school was like. Like with Nathan Cavalieri, it's easy to ask them what their favourite subjects at school was in a really patronising way. I'm pretty sure they told journalists not to ask them about that stuff. There's an argument to be made that despite their best efforts to contain Tomorrow and not to have it define the band, the song got away from Silverchair. If anything, it drove the band into being more closed off. It would be true of the whole band and Daniel Johns in particular for the rest of their lives. And in the first year of this whirlwind, they didn't have a manager. They were managed by their parents. Their dads were still their roadies. Venue crews would wonder who these old men were who were touching the guitars in soundcheck. From the time before Nomad in June of 1994 and the end of the year, their lives had been upended. All those early stories of Silverchair played up how normal they were. How they had normal parents and were into normal things. Now suddenly, they were living a life like no one else on the planet before them or since. There's just no way to understand what the band and those guys went through in this time. It must have been thrilling, but it must have been difficult. Daniel would talk, coyly, years later, about mental health problems and being bullied. I know it's easy to think, if I was the member of Silverchair, in Australia's hottest band in the 90s, what the fuck would I care about what other people thought of me? But it doesn't work that way. And as much as they didn't want to be framed as a teeny bopper band, they got the spotlight of celebrity regardless. There was a terrible parody of Tomorrow by a comedian who created a band called Silver Pram, and of course the one-note comedy song could only make fun of their age. A sketch comedy show called Full Frontal did a joke about the band and their tours and how they were a bit like school excursions and how their lyrics were bad. Again, it was the only thing that they could make fun of. And as much as they avoided talking to and appearing on shows like Hey Hey It's Saturday, they were discussed on there anyway, and their young age was made fun of by those hosts. And the backlash soon became cruel. The common nickname for the band was Nirvana in Pyjamas, a play on the Australian popular kids show Bananas in Pyjamas. Really mean, but actually quite a good joke. Courtney Love famously attacked the band as being lookalikes to Nirvana, which featured her husband, so I can understand why she was a bit sensitive. Everyone knew that when they toured, they toured with their mums, which is embarrassing, but it's not like I went to too many places without my mum at their age. I mean... Sounds like they had smart mums. The band were also the only Australian band ever to make the cover of Mad Magazine. I mean, it's another parody and a piss take on the band, but being the only Australian band to appear on the cover of Mad Magazine is the highest honour imaginable to me. It was another milestone and achievement by this young band, and the story had barely started. Silverchair were included as part of the 1995 Big Day Out, but in keeping with their alternative or nothing ethos, They asked to play in the afternoon on the smaller of two stages. 
They were the biggest band in Australia by some margin at the time, possibly the biggest Australian band for 10 years. But they wanted to play it down. They were paying their dues and not wanting to appear like they had grown too fast. It echoed Nirvana's decision to honour their place as not the headliners on the first Big Day Out bill. And like Nirvana's set, Silverchair played to the biggest crowds anyway, despite the time, and caused a roof to cave in during their Melbourne set. Silverchair's deal with Murmur was a worldwide one, but that just meant that Murmur and Sony had the rights. It didn't mean that Sony around the world actually had to do anything. But executives from the US Sony label Epic flew to Australia for the 1995 Big Day Out to check out this new band. A light bulb, again, maybe the swinging one from the Tomorrow film clip, went off above the execs' heads. Plans were made for the band to conquer America. An album followed. It was produced by Kevin Shirley, a South African engineer and producer who had moved to Australia. He had a good track record for working with loud rock bands like Baby Animals and the Dubrovniks. More importantly, he worked fast and that suited the young band that didn't have lots of studio experience. It was recorded in just nine days at Festival Studios in Sydney. It's interesting that they weren't flown to America to record with a big name producer in some mega studio. Perhaps it was their indie sensibility, but their desire to stay in school meant that their time was limited anyway. Called Frog Stomp, it was released in March of 1995 and included new songs that they had been playing at festivals. Pure Massacre was released as the lead single and peaked at number two. Here's Pure Massacre by Silverchair. Frogstop went to number one in the ARIA charts. It was the highest selling Australian album of 1995. It went on to sell six times platinum. Poor Nevermind by Nirvana only went five times platinum in Australia. They won five ARIA awards at the 1995 ceremony. It was clearly their night and the year that they dominated. Accepting the award on behalf of the band was seven-year-old Josh Shirley, the son of the producer, Kevin Shirley. It was once again a kind of punk rock move and anti-fame but it also meant that there would be no official speech that would be overanalyzed and picked up on by press the next day. Even at one point, young Josh didn't want to get up on stage again after they had won so many awards, so his dad and producer Kevin got up instead. The members of Silverchair were not getting up on that stage to accept awards. They did get on stage to perform, but even then they didn't perform tomorrow. They invited Tim Rogers of UMI to join them on stage for a version of Radio Birdman's New Race. New Race is a classic Australian punk single, but it's definitely not a song for the mainstream world. It was a lovely bit of subversion. 
They were on top of the world in Australia and they could do what they want. And the next step was to conquer the world. Sony's international offices didn't dick around either. Frogstomp featured a new recording of Tomorrow, and that version was released in America with a brand new film clip by the people who made Pearl Jam film clips. The film clip looks expensive, but it still featured 90s jerky lighting that I assume was made with a swinging light bulb. The re-record sounds different, but not significantly different. The song was the same length too. Here's the later album version of Tomorrow, which was released to US radio, now credited to Silverchair. Silverchair would do club dates in Europe and the US, but not long tours. They would play festivals like Roskilde and perform outside Radio Music City Hall for the MTV Awards. They also appeared on Saturday Night Live, the biggest TV show in the world. Frogstomp would go on to sell 2 million copies in America, and it would sell 4 million worldwide. So world was conquered. So what next? It was a question for Silverchair and their label, Murmur. Murmur had started just days before the Innocent Criminals won Nomad, but they weren't actually the first band that Murmur signed. That honour goes to Ammonia. When Silverchair played Saturday Night Live in 1995, Daniel Johns was wearing an Ammonia t-shirt. The band hailed from Perth and they were a three-piece fronted by Dave Johnson on vocals and guitars, Alan Baumont on drums and Simon Hemsworth on bass. They had built a following in Perth and they had gotten some Triple J airplay. They were an exciting three-piece band that existed in the early 90s. So yes, they got signed. Whatever expectations they had for Ammonia, they quickly changed after Silverchair's success. Murmur became a hot label internationally, and people wanted to know more about what this label had to offer. Ammonia's debut EP was called In A Box, and it appeared in October of 1994, just a month after the release of Silverchair's Tomorrow EP. This was Matt CD002. The EP garnered some Triple J airplay, and they were able to tour around Australia. They tapped into the existing Triple J audience that was already there for them around the country. Here's In A Box by Ammonia. Murmur put ammonia into the machine that made Silverchair. They used the same producer as Silverchair's frog snob, Kevin Shirley. They recorded in the same studio, but they came out with something different. The debut album was called Mint 400, and it's a reference to a race in Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Compared to Silverchair, and they constantly were, they were more pop and wrote bigger hooks. 
it was never more prominent than the three-chord thrill of their big hit, Drugs. The song is a rush of energy, some incredible guitar playing, Hemsworth's wonderfully playing 20 notes on the bass when one would do, and a kind of loud, quiet dynamics that was perfect for a mosh pit. It is a perfect mid-90s radio single. From their 1995 debut album, Mint 400, he's Ammonia with Drugs. for this podcast is a screenshot from that wonderful film clip from Drugs. That film clip was just a house party. I'm sure it's all staged, but for 14-year-old me, it was cool as fuck. According to interviews at the time, it was made for just $5,000, a stat that is increasingly less impressive as people make film clips on their iPhones. But still, it was cheap and cool for the time. Drugs charted at number 32 in the ARIA charts and number 27 in the Triple J Hottest 100 of 1995. US Sony imprint Epic, who released Silverchair, also released in 400 in the US, and Drugs was a minor college radio hit. Of course, it was backed up by an intense international touring schedule. The kind of touring schedule that they couldn't ask 15-year-old Silverchair to do. Ammonia toured hard across Europe and America. And in the end, Mint 400 sold 100,000 copies. Not huge for America, but huge for a band from Australia. Other acts were signed to Murmur in these early years, but none of them replicated the success of Ammonia, let alone Silverchair. Sydney's Blue Bottle Kiss were unable to crack the charts or Triple J. Neither did the debut album by Knievel, the post-welcome Matt Band by Wayne Connolly, who was also turning into an in-demand producer. But Murmur was started as an answer to indie labels like Red Eye and Waterfront. They were supposed to be a development label. Not everything was supposed to be the next Silverchair. The other one that came close was Automatic, a band that Murmur beat out signing from a lot of other labels. They were from Geelong and they released an album called Transmitter in 1996. It was also released internationally through Sony, but failed to make an impact. It's a bit of a surprise because I think they sound perfect for radio. He's Automatic from their 1996 album Transmitter with the song Five. Early 1997 saw the release of the second Silverchair album called Freak Show. By now, John Watson, who had been so instrumental in their early career as a Sony employee, quit his secure day job and made the calculated bet to be the band's manager. Murmur remained the home label for Silverchair, but they were a global concern. Otherwise, it felt like they hadn't stopped. Their debut album Frog Stomp was recorded quickly and cheaply, and no one knew that this unknown band would hit it big worldwide. 
but Freak Show had a bigger budget and the band took the time to get the music right. It was their first with producer Nick Launay. He would go on to produce several more albums by Silverchair and other Australian bands. Lead single Freak features some of the silliest lyrics ever to start a song, but otherwise it was fun, direct and a straight-ahead rocker. There was very little of the slow, laboured guitar noodling of the first album. More than a little bit of punk had crept in. In fact, several songs had the working title of Punk Song Number 1, Punk Song Number 2, etc. Of course, the album and single would get to number one in Australia. Ultimately, Silverchair would disown the song Tomorrow, but Freak would actually become their consistent set-ender. Here's Freak by Silverchair. Show saw the songwriting develop and the production was top-notch. The album sounded great. There was still very much a backlash against them, but they kept their head down and stuck to their guns, and they still didn't play the commercial game. They still had an audience in Australia and Triple J played them. Triple J kind of couldn't drop them, they had invented them. And in reward, Silverchair held a secret gig for Triple J competition winners at Luna Park. One of the coolest things that Triple J did around this time was to appear as the Recovery house band. The Saturday morning TV show Recovery always featured some unknown, unsigned band as the house band, playing a few snippets of music leading in and out of breaks. They don't get to perform a song, they just provide colour, but it was kind of a cool job. That a multi-platinum silver chair would hang around for the entire episode of Recovery just to be the house band was super cool. If you wanted to see a band pay their dues, this was it. No other big indie band has ever done that. Freak Show sold three times platinum in Australia and spawned three top ten singles. Two songs from Freak Show made the hottest 100 of 1997. Freak came in at number 13, and The Door, the last single from the album, came in at number 27. The band toured Europe and the States. The album got to number 12 in America, and it sold one and a half million copies all up. In short, it was another success. The Door, that last single from Freak Show, is really good. It was rock with a bit of roll, like Led Zeppelin meets Power Pop. Here's The Door by Silverchair. Band wrapped up 1997 by finishing high school. After two massive albums, millions of sales, and everything they've been through so far, it was only now that the guys in Silverchair could finally be a band full time. And that was the end of Silverchair Part 1.
Ammonia aside, Murmur at this point was mainly the Silverchair label, but by 1997 they really hit their stride with a couple of new signings. The first was Jebediah. Like Silverchair before them, Jebediah seemed like the Triple J audience making music for the Triple J audience. They were from Perth. They consisted of singer-guitarist Kevin Mitchell, his brother Brett Mitchell on drums, Chris Damon on guitar and Vanessa Thornton on bass. They won the National Campus Band Competition and it got them a slot on the Somersault Music Festival. Signing to Murmur, they released the EP Twitch in 1996. It did well in their local fan base and it featured their first great song, Tracksuit. From their EP Twitch, here's Tracksuit by Jebediah. Well, I don't want to make things bad But these last few weeks are the worst I've had And that's really sad, it's really sad, you know Wow Because I knew what we were gonna say And I didn't want it to end that way Like on a Wednesday, but that's okay But it was the album Slightly Odd Way that made them indie superstars. It hit number 7 in the ARIA charts and went double platinum. It seems as though there was single after single released, each bigger than the last. Five songs from the album made either the hottest 100 of 1997 or 1998. The big first single was Leaving Home, which came in at number 10 in the hottest 100 of 97. Here's Leaving Home by Jebediah. Were you left out by your friends? Or were you lost for words when everybody finally told you what they thought? Slightly Odd Way is fantastic. It's a debut album by young pop rock fans, full of ideas and no need to prove anything. Songs were about aliens and parties and cleaning up lino. It reminds me of great debuts from bands like Weezer, Supergrass or Violent Femmes. They also looked great. They were more colourful than your average jeans and t-shirt bands. Girls at schools started looking like Vanessa almost immediately. It helped that they jumped around a lot and had lots of energy live. The MVP for me is Chris and his inventive guitar work. See the wonderful Harpoon, the last single from the album which made number 7 in the Hottest 100 of 98. Damon's guitar twinkles as Kevin Mitchell sings a lovely ballad about romantic ambiguity. The album was written by the young members of the band and the lyrics were often silly, but on tracks like Harpoon there were some lines that showed some real promise. Like the line, I can handle the fighting, it's the affection I can't stand. 
It's memorable, romantic, and messy. Here's Harpoon by Jebediah. Harpoon was later recorded by the other new murmur signing that showed promise. By now, Sony had hired Chris Dunn, formerly of Waterfront, to do A&R. His indie instincts led him to another big signing for murmur, Something for Kate. Melbourne Something for Kate was a noisy but intense three-piece fronted by Paul Dempsey with drummer Clint Heinemann and bassist Julian Carroll. Paul Dempsey was the primary songwriter and he was captivating. Skinny, gaunt and tall, He cut a figure on stage, especially when the band got loud and he flung himself around. Then he sang with his aged growl that seemed to come from an older man. The band followed the formula at the time of releasing an EP before doing an album. It was a good way of getting the song on the radio and then having the excuse to tour. They did a tour of universities in 1997 with label mates Jebediah. They also released their debut album the same year as Jebediah. Something for Kate's album was called Elsewhere for 8 Minutes. And the big song from it was Captain, open brackets, million miles an hour, close brackets. Intense and arresting, it couldn't be further away from the punk pop of Jebediah or their other Murmur label mates. It's a fantastic song, except for my personal hatred of Australian bands using American measurements like Miles in lyrics. It would make it to number 39 in the Hottest 100 of 1997. Here's something for Kate with Captain, open brackets, million miles an hour. for eight minutes were all released in 1997. Three huge records. And in these years, 1997 and 1998, Murmur seemed to rule the airwaves. At least they did on the alternative side. Commercial radio were not jumping onto Jebediah or something for Kate. But Murmur seemed to have mastered what this Australian alternative 90s thing was all about. And their bands seemed to form a scene especially when Something For Kate covered Harpoon and Jebediah returned suit by covering Something For Kate's song, Clint. All the bands were young, fun guitar bands seemingly made for Triple J. Another crossover happened when Ammonia returned for their second album, 11th Avenue. It wasn't the straight-ahead riff-a-rama of Mint 400. In fact, it was a more sophisticated pop record and more than the three-piece could replicate live. So they managed to get Paul Dempsey to play second guitar for the live shows. It all helped to make Murmur feel like a family, or at least a scene. The big single from Ammonia's 11th Avenue was You're Not the Only One Who Feels This Way and was released the year before in 1997. It had that soft, loud dynamic that was so 90s, but the recording was full of detail. 
It made number 43 in the Hottest 100 of 1997. Here's You're Not the Only One Who Feels This Way by Ammonia. Cuts like pins and needles Miles and miles away Hope to let you in Hours and hours a day Come to this conclusion It's walls couldn't stay This is the first and last time began as a fully owned imprint within Sony. Sony for its credit knew that the game had changed and gave Murmur their own offices in Surrey Hills when they started. It was so bands didn't have to go into Sony's corporate office and see that it was really run in an ivory tower in the city. But having its own office didn't hide the truth forever and at the start of 1999, Sony Music Australia went through a restructure. Murmur's label head John O'Donnell moved into running A&R for all of Sony. A promotion for him, but a loss for Murmur and that Surrey Hills office closed shortly after. Murmur, which is integrated back into Sony Music Australia. The last Silverchair album on Murmur was 1999's Neon Ballroom. Daniel Johns declared it as the first actual Silverchair album. Gone was the long Nirvana haircut. The band members were either 19 or 20 now. It certainly felt like a new band. Silverchair had taken a year off after Freak Show. Chris and Ben relaxed and kept normal hours. Johns, however, fell into a depression. He also developed anorexia. He was still dealing with the issues having gone through an experience that no one else on the planet could understand. The first single from Neon Ballroom was Anthem for the Year 2000. It's heavy and heavy-handed. It feels like a deliberate stab at an anthem, but it's shouty and electric enough that it rocks pretty hard. The drums sound huge, like stadium rock huge. It's nice to hear Daniel Johns, if only lightly, put the boot into fascism and politicians. Here's Silverchair with Anthem for the Year 2000, taken from their 1999 album, Neon Ballroom. We are the youth, we'll take your fascism away. We are the youth, apologize for another day. We are the youth, and politicians are so sure. Anthem for the year 2000 got to number 3 in the charts and made it to number 29 in the Hottest 100. 
but it was the second single that was the biggest hit. Around this point, Silverchair became about Daniel. Bands were nice and all, but very few bands make it big without a frontman to idolise. On Neon Ballroom, Johns took almost all the songwriting. Previously, Ben Gillies had co-written half the songs on Frog Stomp and did the same for Freak Show. But Gillies would only get one co-write on Neon Ballroom, and he would not get a co-write on any more Silverchair albums after this. It's not just that the songs were all by Daniel. A lot of them were very much about Daniel. And it's no more clear than on Anna's song, John's song about his own anorexia. Above and beyond the song matter which got all the press, it was a prettier song for Silverchair, with a great melody for radio. Here's Silverchair with Anna's song. Please Diana, for as long as you're here, you make the sound of When Silverchair started, Murmur put the Tomorrow EP in an album case to make it look more important than a pop single. They did something similar to Neon Ballroom. The album package, The Neon Ballroom, came in a thick double digi pack with a die cut cover. It had a bonus CD, but that CD was a CD-ROM that had a documentary about the making of Neon Ballroom. Everything about it screamed, Serious Album. The opening track, Emotion Sickness, featured the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, as well as pianist David Healthcott who had inspired the 1996 Australian film Shine that won Geoffrey Rush the Academy Award for Best Actor. This was a long way from Frog Stomp, which was recorded in just nine days. Silverchair were a big band before, but they didn't always act big. But Neon Ballroom sounded big. The album debuted at number one in the ARIA charts, and Neon Ballroom seemed to be everywhere the year it was released. And they headlined Homebake. They even appeared at the ARIA Awards and accepted their wins. Silverchair had paid their dues. They weren't 15 anymore, and they weren't hiding in the alternative scene anymore. But the album only got to number 50 in America. But in a way, that was a good thing, because Neon Ballroom was a move away from mainstream to credibility. At the level that Silverchair were playing at, you had to be a celebrity first, and band second. Neon Ballroom is where they turn away from that, but it's also when America turned away from Silverchair. And just as they were trying to bury their past, the past came back to haunt them. The deal that Silverchair signed in 1994 was for three albums and a greatest hits. It was pretty standard that at the end of a contract, someone scoops up all those singles together and puts it out on one CD, and ultimately that CD stays in print, and they discount it every Christmas and it continues to sell. Usually, if you're a big band, you sign a new contract at some point and you delay that greatest hits or get it wiped from the contract completely. But Silverchair wanted to take even more control of their career. They didn't want to sign again with Sony, Instead, they formed a label with their manager, John Watson. Called Eleven, the label would be the home of Silverchair for the rest of their career, as well as future stars like Gautier and Missy Higgins. So Sony exercised their right to release the greatest hits. 
they didn't even need the band's permission. And perhaps they knew the band wouldn't like it, so they just slapped on a logo and put the songs in order and that was it. They called it Silverchair Best Of Volume 1. Silverchair left Sony on the 1st of November 2000. Best Of Volume 1 was in shops on the 13th of November 2000. That's less than two weeks later. The band made it clear that they had no input, and with no promotion, the Best Of charted at number 16 anyway. Silverchair and Sony got together through Murmur, the indie and understanding arm of the multinational who would take care of them. It ends, like so many contracts, with bitterness. As much as Sony tried to protect Silverchair, it was never going to be a road free of bullshit. And that original anti-plan that the Murmur guys wrote was never going to last forever. Murmur, after the change of 1999, never seemed to recover their magic. Their only new signing in the late 90s was a Sydney band called Lotel, whose debut single in the year 2000 was called Teenager of the Year. It made it to number 15 in the Hottest 100, but otherwise the band failed to capitalise on it. Here's the last new success on Murmur, Lotel with Teenager of the Year. So this Jebediah followed their debut album in 1999 with an album called Of Someday Shambles. It was a fine album that felt like it continued the work of Slightly Odd Way. Once again, the big, fun, pop, punky songs were big, fun, pop and punky. See the first single, Animal. But it's the creeping in of a more sensitive side with songs like Please Leave and Feet Touch the Ground that were the highlights. Here's my favourite from that album, Feet Touch the Ground by Jebediah. By the end of the 90s, the international Sony machine weren't looking at what Murmur had to offer anymore. Jebediah were not going to get the international support that Silverchair had. 
Instead, Jebediah found kinship with the new emo scene, whatever the hell that means. This is in the early days, before the sync all got a bit weird and became a parody of itself. They did a split single with Jimmy Eat World, and Of Someday Shambles was released in the US on the emo label, Big Wheel Recreation. Jebediah made one more album for Murmur, a self-titled effort in 2002. But by then, rock music had moved towards the Vines and the Jet, and the album did okay, but not enough for Sony to keep them. They still had a large fan base, and they went their own way, and they started their own label. Kevin Mitchell would strike out on solo projects as well, most notably as Bob Evans, making wonderful acoustic pop albums. But that's another story. Here's my favourite Bob Evans song, released in 2006. It's called Don't You Think It's Time, and it's a far cry from Jebediah, but shows how far his songwriting had travelled. Here's Don't You Think It's Time by Bob Evans. Don't you think it's time Time to start and now Time for changing views Time for making up your mind Don't you think it's time Time for moving on Time for growing strong Time to leave the past You've been on my mind Oh, you've been on my mind You've been on my mind Oh, you've been on my mind Don't you think Ammonia broke up having failed to capitalise on their early success Like bands like The Welcome Mat, the band members were not close enough to deal with the challenge together. If anything, the success and the pressure pushed them apart. According to everyone, it wasn't fun anymore and they all walked away. They played their last show at the 1999 Big Day Out and that was that. The band all got jobs, although singer Dave would occasionally play. He did a small show in 2021 where he played Ammonia songs live for the first time in decades. One of the songs that he played at that gig was Baby Blue from that underrated second Ammonia album, 11th Avenue. It wasn't a single or anything, but just a song that I love. Here's the studio version of Baby Blue by Ammonia. The band to really rise in the decade was Something for Kate. New bass player Stephanie Ashworth helped to bring a different dimension to the band, who would go on to bigger success and acclaim. It was first heard on their 1999 album Beautiful Sharks, the first to crack the top 10. Their story really isn't a 90s one. It's not the decade where they made their mark. But here's their prettiest song from the 90s for my money. From their album Beautiful Sharks, here's The Astronaut by Something for Kate. Side of a thin blue line 
but Murmur would ultimately murmur away. The reason they started to be this development label to take advantage of the rights of Triple J ceased to exist by the end of the decade, and the bands that they were developing were now developed. They merged back with Sony and it kind of all just fell apart. Murmur, who made such an impact and had their logo on so many of the best albums of the decade, lasted only six years. The Silver Chair story has so many angles, it's hard to get it straight. Almost 30 years after, I don't know what to make of it. This already feels like it will be the longest episode of this podcast, and there's still so much more I could say. But in this story I'm telling about the push and pull of alternative culture into the mainstream, Silver Chair and Murmur are fascinating. They were the first to decide to play nothing but the alternative game, and they won. Murmur kind of won the 90s. They took all the little bits of the alternative scene and made it work. They knew how to work Triple J and The Big Day Out. They managed to work out how to do EPs properly, and they worked out the best way to get on recovery, and they managed to crack America. And Silverchair were good for Murmur too. They were too young to have preconceived notions about how their career should be, the way that the Hummingbirds or Magic Dirt did. They allowed Murmur to just try new things. Every other alternative rock band in Australia would be compared to Silverchair and their success at least from here on in. Silverchair's success these days seems bittersweet. I won't say much about the rest of Silverchair's career past the 90s, but for many people, they never outgrew tomorrow. And this isn't even the mainstream who never forgot. I'm talking about Triple J listeners who voted Frogstomp the second greatest Australian album of all time in 2011. Long after the band stopped playing just about every track from that debut album. And these were the music fans. And as much as Murmur tried to protect Silverchair, no one could survive what they went through unscathed. As of the writing and recording of this, the members of Silverchair are fractured. Daniel Johns has talked openly about trying to manage his trauma. Chris and Ben have released a book telling their side of the story for the first time. Silverchair was something that happened to Ben, Chris and Daniel. And in more recent interviews, they are all clearly still grasping at what that means. But Silverchair was something that happened to me and a whole generation of me's. They were everywhere. So many kids wanted to be Silverchair. So many slightly older kids hated Silverchair. Everyone had an opinion. And they were huge. They took all that Triple J stuff and they put it on the world stage for a wonderful moment. Ammonia t-shirts on SNL, telling people that they were named after a You Are My song. I know it was fun to rally against big bands in the 90s, but looking at it now, I think it's super cool that at least one of these Australian bands got to the top. In research for this episode, I joined all the Silverchair Facebook groups that I could find. There's a few Facebook groups for some of the indie bands and cult labels I covered, but there's nothing like Silverchair. I read more books, more interviews, more chapters in non-Silverchair books, watched more YouTube videos, and did more work about this episode than any other. But it's also because more media exists around Silverchair than anything else I've covered in this podcast. But after all that, it still feels like this story hasn't been told properly. I don't pretend that my retelling is even close. A big screen documentary with a proper music director. That's what this story needs. That golden period of Murmur, 1997 to 1998, is fantastic. Music is best when it creates culture and fandom around it. And Murmur really did that. Ammonia, Jebediah, something for Kate. They were the sound of young Australia. At least they were for a couple of years. I also think Murmur captured the look of this Triple J scene. Colourful tight band t-shirts, sneakers and flared jeans, girls wearing the same things as boys, and lots of colourful hair. 
That was the look of the Triple J crowd. Britpop can have their Adidas jackets and grunge can have its flannel. We had the fashion that you can see in Ammonia and Jebediah film clips. The look of Murmur was the look of the 90s Australian alternative music scene, and I dressed like that for about 10 years. There's no compilation of the label, but if there was, musically it'd actually be quite consistent. It's a shame that the label was left to fade out. To end, if I had to choose my favourite ever album on Murmur, it's that incredible debut album by Jebediah, Slightly Oddway. Everyone loved it, and they played tons of all-age shows at the time, and I saw them heaps. I hope every year, new 16-year-olds are discovering it, the way Weezer's debut album seems to connect eternally with new teenagers. From their 1997 debut album, Slightly Oddway, here's Jebediah with Teflon. You've made it to the end bit. This is where I do the usual stuff about supporting the podcast and other things related to Just Ace. And every week, I highlight something different. And this week, let's talk about social media. So I have a couple of things I do, like Instagram and Facebook. I post some stuff about each episode and maybe other fun 90s stuff along the way. But everyone has enough content coming at them. I don't want to add to the noise for no reason. Trust me, there's no engagement strategy. Social media, though, is a good way to keep up with the podcast and to message me. But it's also a perception thing. You all know it. Good social media numbers and a strong number of followers opens doors. So what I'm saying is this. Follow me on social media. I promise not to spam you with nonsense. But if you like this podcast, you will like the channels. And the challenge for me is to try to get to 500 followers. It'll really help. So chuck me a follow on social media on the usual places with the username just ace 90s which is just ace 90s it's one of the no cost ways that you can support me there are also paid ways to support the podcast like patreon and buy me a coffee and there are things to buy on redbubble there's other no cost ways like leaving me a review on apple Podcasts and sharing my posts and telling a friend the links to all of that stuff is in the description oh along with a website and a mailing list go check it all out okay next week I look at the corner of the world created by Candle Records. <laughs> <laughs>